Chicago Urban Health Initiative's Community Health Focus Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Dorian Miller, your doctor on call, and thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a live show, and we've got two wonderful in-studio guests with us today, and so please give us a call and ask your questions or make comments. The number to call is the WVON listener call line. That's 773-591-1690. That is 773-591-1690. Before we get started with our topic today, I'd like to acknowledge that on December 1st, it was World AIDS Day, and the theme for World AIDS Day for 2020 was Ending the HIV and AIDS Epidemic, Resilience and Impact. This theme this year particularly is especially poignant as our HIV community has seen some new challenges because of COVID around the globe. Let's make sure that we unite in the fight to end the HIV epidemic, support people living with HIV, and also honoring those who have lost their lives to HIV. Now let's get into our topic. Today's topic is African-American men's mental health, and as I said, I've have the privilege of having two people who are experts in their fields to come and to talk with us about this topic. But just a little bit of background for our listeners today. Black men have had to deal with a lot of frustration this year. Issues such as COVID-19 and racial injustice has heightened their anxiety to new levels to the point where they find themselves constantly worrying about their safety and the health of their families, as well as their financial stability because of the problems that we've had within the economic crisis that's come from COVID-19. And so we're going to discuss some of these issues today. My guests today in studio are Mr. Dwayne Johnson. He is a social worker and the lead violence recovery specialist at UChicago Medicine. It's so glad to have you here, Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Dr. Miller. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My next guest is Dr. Larry Turner. He is a Psych D, an RN, a CADC, and also a CIAYT. And he's going to tell us what all of those initials stand for because he's got a lot behind his name. But most importantly, he's the founder of the Therapeutic Inventory Institute. And so we're very pleased to have him here today. Thanks, Dr. Turner, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. All of those letters. I just can't keep a job. That's why I had to keep uh, uh, a licensed clinical psychologist, registered nurse, ER and psych, substance abuse specialist, and uh, yoga therapist, certified yoga therapist. Boy, so it sounds as if you certainly cover the waterfront just in terms of thinking about not just clinical health, but mental health and well-being, and also spiritual well-being. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So I'm going to start off with our first question for discussion. And the first question is, what comes to mind when you hear the words black men, mental and emotional health? And I'll start with you, Mr. Johnson. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for posing that question. And I'd also like to add that I am also a practicing clinician for the Branch Family Institute with mental health as well. And uh, what comes to my mind when I hear the words black men, mental, men, mental and emotional health, I think of the historical plight a black man as it pertains to trauma and existential challenges that we have in life in general just existing. In addition to these things, I also think of the black man and the families that they are dis- and, their, and their families that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic of COVID-19 that has been affected with the uh, racial injustices, the loss of so many black men and women due to at the hands of law enforcement. And I also think of all the inf- unfortunate events that historically repeat themselves when black 
people are continuously mistreated, marginalized, dehumanized, and disenfranchised. I think about the vulnerability and the fears of the ba- and the barriers uh, that black men have as it pertains to seeking mental health resources. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Dr. Turner, what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, totally agree with what uh, Dwayne has said. Uh, but also, you know, we as black men, we aren't taught emotional health and spiritual health. All of our gains, our childhood things are tied into the society of victory, force, and we're not taught how to be gentle, how to be soft, how to recognize that side. We're taught that that side is weak. With the extra added pressures of everything, of uh, systemic racism, um, that adds another layer. But you know, there's a very strong resiliency there overall because we've had to endure and continue to endure so many different things. So uh, this, the COVID, the unemployment situations, more structures, but we've had plenty of pressures that we've learned to deal with. Now, how can we tap into that strength, I think, is really is really important. You know, I think about this sometimes and something that my father taught me many years ago when I asked him, why is it that, at least in men in his generation, when they would see what two African-American men walking down the street that they didn't know one another, that they would give one another the nod? And you're sitting here nodding mm-hmm. your heads. You understand what the nod is. I understand what the nod is. But mm-hmm. I sometimes don't see our young men in society today doing that in terms of acknowledging one another's humanity and place in this world. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so difficult for our young men to do this and also to seek help for some of their issues? Dr. Turner, and then yeah. I'll go to Ms. Johnson. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's part of the, a culture, that they haven't been taught that. I speak to – I live on the corner, so I speak to – Everyone, every young man coming off, pants hanging down or not, if, if I know you or somebody, I say, hey, man, you need a belt or something like that. <laughs> but I think just to acknowledge them, even though they may think there's nothing wrong, mm-hmm. that we are the older generation and younger generation, we're not at odds with each other. We're not against each other. Yeah, I might be considered a square, but I'm still on your team. And so that, I think, is, is the strongest part that, the whole sense of community, uh, like we're talking about your father, seems to be gone. We move around a lot, and uh, that that seems to be a really big problem. Thank you. Mr. Johnson, your response? Yeah, I, I agree 100% with what the doctor just said, and I, I feel like it's definitely a, a culture piece and the state of the community with, when we think about the violence and things of that nature that are uh, that is occurring in our communities. Oftentimes, the young men today, what I've observed, are, you know, almost afraid to even speak to each other, to even look eye to eye with one another because with everything that's going on in the community, with the opposition, with the gangs, with the violence, young men are just, you know, I I think they feel safer by not engaging like we used to as opposed to engaging and taking a chance on being a victim or a target uh, for whatever reasons. I think that's the main thing that resonates with me when I think about that piece right there, as well as the upbringing of the young men and and women uh, today, particularly when we think about the uh, crack epidemic and and that disproportionately affected black communities and how it it, it just pretty much, I'm trying to think of the right word to use. I don't want to use the word I want to use, but I'm going to use it. (laughs) (laughs) It pretty much screwed up the... um, family structure yeah. uh, with a lack of adults, parents being able to really uh, 
provide for and care for and nurture their children as a result of being addicted mm-hmm. to a substance that was, I feel, purposely infiltrated into our communities. Well, I also think that also the, the kinds of, of laws and the very strict laws that they had even around marijuana use exactly. in those days and how it so disproportionately affected so mm-hmm. many of our, particularly our young men of mm-hmm. color in our communities, I think was quite something. Yeah. So, Dr. Turner, what are the leading stressors for black men in this day and age? And we can think about the kind of low-grade epidemic of poverty and violence in our communities. We threw in COVID-19 on top of it, and then we've thrown in the terrible, terrible issues around the deaths of so many in our community, and I'm, we can call their names. We can call Ahmed Arbery. We can call George mm-hmm. Floyd. We can call many names over the years, not just, but it seems much more mm-hmm. intense this year. But talk a little bit to me about what some of those issues are and uh, why we are struggling. Yeah, yeah, that's a real important issue. The trauma around being impacted by black men, one of the main things is being able to see yourself in the different videos we've seen of young black men and women getting killed, getting physically assaulted. It's good that everything is out there, that you can video everything, but it's also kind of damaging when you see so much of it uh, and you're not motivated to do something about it. That's the really impact. The other stressors are not being able to live up, quote, unquote, what you think a man should be or how you were taught to be a man mm-hmm. or are you, are, you able, are you in a group that is talking about issues that have to do with how you think and how you make decisions. Very few of us uh, are in these groups because they're talking about things that we usually don't examine. We don't examine feelings. We don't examine, okay, so I I just have a GED instead of uh, an associate's degree. I can't get a job, and we're stuck in this, I can't, 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 can't. And we keep pounding upon ourselves a lot. Society does its job, but a lot of times we do some damage to ourselves doing that. Mm-hmm. Mr. Johnson, any comment on that? No. No? no? Okay. All righty. Very, very good. So I think that sometimes one of the questions that comes up because the issue of what does it mean when someone struggles with their mental health and mm-hmm. what should they know, I think that sometimes people have a lot of stereotypes or images in terms of what does that mean. Yes. But also I think that and I think about uh, African-American men, they think, okay, We've gone through slavery. We went through the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and that they don't necessarily have a right, or they don't feel as if they should be impacted or have any issues around mental health. Mm-hmm. But if something was going on, how would one know? So, Dr. Turner, I'm going to turn yeah. to you first, and then after that, you, Mr. Johnson. Okay. Thank you. Well, I take this. There's always something going on with the, with, with your thinking, particularly if you, you're a black man. In our society, we've said that. Uh, you know, the DSM-5, is, this, is, this is the symptoms that you have. Well, in a lot of those conditions, a lot of times we have these symptoms, but it's not bad enough to keep me from functioning. And so I continue to go on. But any time we have a disturbance in our mind when we're leaning one way or we're leaning the other, that's a mental issue. It's not, quote, unquote, enough to go to a counselor maybe or to see a psychologist. But it's a mental issue, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, stereotypically, when you ask someone, do you have any mental problems or emotional problems, 
they're going to say no. Why? Because they aren't doing some bizarre behavior or they are able to dress themselves and they're able to function quite, quite well. So it's all of our issues, and, and I say this globally for everyone, there's always something kind of to the left or to the right, depending on how we've been influenced. Mm-hmm. And so the path that keeps us kind of right-sided is usually missed by a lot of us. And sometimes we lean way over to the left, that I'm a man, I don't have any problems. I'm a black man. I've been doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I can move forward. I won't do a lot of things to go forward, but I can because I'm not beaten down enough, those mm-hmm. sort of things. And the person that's beaten down enough is the brother that's standing on the street corner who's talking to himself and raging, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be 10 below outside or 95 above outside. And that's more of the stereotypic picture. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mr. Johnson? Yeah. And so I I think uh, signs of uh, struggling with mental health, I I agree with uh, Dr. Turner that we all have uh, challenges with mental health in some form or fashion. But to name a few of the symptoms that he talked about, I think if we have excessive uh, worry or fear, which correlates with anxiety, feelings of excessively sad and low, which correlates with depression, confused thinking, problems concentrating, not able to focus, not being motivated, uh, extreme mood changes, so many different, uh, uh, increased use of alcohol and substances, so many different uh, things occur when we're having these challenges and we may not even recognize we're having them. Secondly, I would say that we hear so much about we're resilient people, which we are, and sometimes I think we lean a little too hard on the resilience component because even though we're resilient, we still need supports to support that resilience and to and to help provide us a better quality of life with the mental challenges and struggles that we have. Thank you so much. We're coming up on our first break. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour, brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. I've got two great in-studio guests today, and they are happy to take your questions and comments. Please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. to the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. And I am back with our wonderful in-studio guest, Dr. Larry Turner and Mr. Dwayne Johnson. And we're going to come back to our conversation about African-American men and mental health. So let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that come up from the outside around this. And we, you know, talked a little bit about COVID-19 and some other issues before. But, Mr. Johnson, I'm going to Mm -hmm. turn this question to you because Mm -hmm. this is actually right in your sweet spot in terms of the type of work that you do on a day-to-day basis. And so Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about trauma. How does trauma impact and its impact on violence, how does that impact black men and the way that they respond in our society and also some impact on their mental health? I feel like, yeah, this is really in my wheelhouse, I feel like the trauma affects black men in a lot of ways. But I think that when we understand what trauma is, when we're trauma-informed and we recognize the signs and symptoms that come along with traumatic experiences, we could better understand some of those behaviors that we see being presented in the communities. When we think about trauma or being uh, exposed to a traumatic experience that affect us uh, emotionally, uh, mentally, uh, we think about people being easily agitated, easily angered, having shame, grief, guilt, being hypervigilant, being even more aggressive, being in survival mode, 
you know, and when we're in survival mode, well, all those different symptoms and signs and behaviors come along to help keep us alive. But in doing so, it can be problematic when we're not when we are in a safe space, but we're still reacting as if we're in survival mode and we're in that space and that frame of mind, as should I say, that uh, affects us and, and perpetuates some of those behaviors I just talked about. So I think with that being said, it pretty much explains some of the impact that trauma has on black men and the impact that it has on the cycle of violence and how it's perpetuated in the community. You know, I was talking about when we were in our first segment today about the nod, and I could imagine Mm -hmm. that in this day and age for young men, if they see somebody doing this, that that could actually be interpreted as a threat to them Mm -hmm. as opposed to something that is meant to be, you know, I'm acknowledging your presence and your humanity and trying to establish some sort of fellowship. Mm -hmm. We have a caller on the line right now, and so we're going to take that call. Hello, Ben, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. What's your question or comment for our guest today? Well, I I want to say hi to Larry. I've known Larry for many years. And uh, I've also been involved with men's health for many years, dealing with anger management and emotional literacy. So we're we're on the same page with dealing with men and, and, and the traumas that we experience coming through our lives. Very good. It's the question of emotional literacy. Talk a little bit more about that, Ben, because I think that one of the things we were talking about before we took your call is how does one interpret threats or sometimes real or sometimes perceived, and how do you understand that amongst African-American men? I used the example of the nod that my father taught me about many years ago in which African-American men would sometimes nod at one another, even though they didn't know one another as they were walking down the street. Sure. I can only speak for myself because I do recognize the nod that you speak of. I suffered, I experienced the childhood trauma that caused me to disconnect from my emotions. And when I reconnected, it was through anger management and domestic violence in 1980. And I've just been on my journey ever since. In fact, for us, that are, that's some, some of us that are doing the work, anger is the gateway emotion. Had I not dealt with what I was angry about from my childhood, I would never have been able to access anger, fear, sadness, and shame. So this was the gateway emotion, and it was through domestic violence that I began to do my work on what I was angry about and what I was traumatized. Within my family, I was traumatized. Thank you, Ben. Dr. Turner, can you give us a little bit of a definition of what is emotional literacy, please? Well, emotional literacy, don't have a formal definition, but I come from the standpoint of to help to reduce the impact of what we're seeing today, you have to begin with young men, young children early, being able to understand that here's how you're thinking. It's not that it's wrong. Here's what you did based on your thinking. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that this is what happens after. You you don't want to be stuck in a role such as this is a man's toy, this is a woman's toy. You want to be able to see both sides and because you might not measure up to the man. You might want to lean more over here, and that doesn't make you any different or anything, but just to be aware of what emotions can do and how you have them and what you do with them. I I explain it to my grandson and uh, my young son all the time. Okay, so you're mad at me because I told you to study. It's okay to be mad. 
you know, but don't poke your lips out so far. You know, mm-hmm. do, do some different things like that. So just explaining to them that the different emotions that you have aren't permanent fixtures. They're things that you go through. And just because you're upset, you don't have to stay in this mode. So that sort of thing. Thank you. Mr. Johnson. I, I would say in addition to that, I think that was well said, but I think the gentleman that just called in pretty much described it and hit the nail on the head when he talked about he was not able to feel his emotions, his anger and his rage and all those different things, whatever those emotions were that he described. And I think the emotional literacy piece is the ability to be able to identify those emotions and, and work with them, that emotional yes. literacy piece. That's the most important component uh, to the emotional literacy piece, yeah. being able to identify those emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understanding what you're feeling, but also I think something else that Dr. Turner was saying that I think is really important, validating that it's a, yeah. you can have this feeling. You can Absolutely. also have feelings of happiness. Mm-hmm. You can have feelings of joy, mm-hmm. that there's a whole palette of emotions that are there that as human beings we have yeah. and mm-hmm. that you deserve to have them. Yeah, and yeah. then being able to put some discipline on, on your emotions. For instance, mm-hmm. this, say this, if you like to play video games and you have five hours a day of playing it, that makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. But then you're also a young student in school. Where's the balance? Can you give me two hours or three hours of study? You know, you got to kind of balance it out, and you, you kind of make them see that, okay, I know they are right, but this feels so much good playing this PlayStation 5, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But you have to say, well, okay, well, give me some serious two hours of math and reading, mm-hmm. those sort of things. So you kind of bargaining in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I'm going to talk uh, about the issue that I think sometimes is the elephant in the room, and it's also another external factor, and that is racism, mm-hmm. something that exists within our society. Sometimes people refer to them as structural inequities. Lots of people have it, but I, I think that sometimes just calling it for what it is, mm-hmm. racism can play a role there. And so turn to you, Dr. Turner. How yeah. do you see this in play in terms of the mental health amongst African-American men? Okay, this is the last question of the show. Oh, <laughs> oh, boy. oh boy. Okay. So I got some more show to go. So. <laughs> okay. So, you know, racism is just so it's intertwined into our society. You know, there is the blatant white on black police type of racism or going to the store and knowing that someone's watching you, that sort mm. of thing. But there's also the structure. You know, we all went to school, you know, and uh, hearing about how great George Washington was and all the founders of this country and how they did all this. No one ever told us about the majority of them were slave owners and and the different things that happened all the way up. And so we tend to believe this and believe this. And then we finish school, and then we go on to another, you can call it indoctrination, is necessary to be successful, but at the same time, we have to seek outside of that our history, mm-hmm. and the true history of America and the part that we play so that we can feel good about ourselves. And that's the part that really kind of cheats our children, I think, mm-hmm. that we don't hear about the things that our society has done. Very important yeah. point. We've got a caller on the line, and then I'm going to yeah. come back to you, Mr. Johnson. Thank so, you. Eric, are you there? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, I am. Uh, how you doing? Good, thank you. You have a question or a comment for our guest today? Yeah, you know, it's a comment. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, about my family, how my brothers, they were younger than me, okay, and how they're so advanced and how they're most successful than I am. And, and, you know, later on until I got older and learned, what the problem was, you know, 
my mom back in, my mom, she had had insecurities, you know. She's a good, I, I love my mom, don't get me wrong. But she had insecurities, you know, when she was coming up. It was a lot of backlash against my dad. And I was close to my dad. And it was bright, and, you know, it was really getting ideas in my head. It was kind of turning me against my dad. And due to that, I started picking up qualities from my mom, you know, how to cook, make beds, and, and, and you know, things like that. Well, my brothers... They still stayed close to my dad, you know, in the garage, you know, watching them, you know, work on the cars. And, you know, when I got older, you know, the Lord told me this is not natural. You know, uh, you still need that male figure in your life. That's why my brother was so advanced that I was because I, I didn't, you know, it was off balance here. I had missed that male figure in my life because of the, because of the insecurities my mom had against my dad, hmm. which had, you know, got in my mind. And, and it really, it made it, my brother's much younger than me. But I wonder, I said, why are they so advanced? And, and why, why is it that they know certain things and they know advanced than I am? And the Lord revealed that to me because they didn't get caught up in the insecurities that my mom had at that time. And they still honored and respect, respected my dad. And my, mm-hmm. and my dad imputed a lot into them to make him be successful, you know, like not only that. But you find that when they are fit even involved in women's, girls' life, you see, you, you can see how successful they are. You know, I think you're bringing up a very important mm-hmm. point, Eric, and I'd actually like to have Dr. Turner and Mr. Johnson to, to respond to that in terms of what does it take, what's the importance of role modeling and the role of African-American men in the lives of their children? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Turner? Yeah, I, I think it's very important, but you have to be able to, I mean, nowadays we're not set in a role. You know where the male is the is is the breadwinner, and both parents may have to work. Whatever strengths you bring to that relationship, that family, it should be you know the, the adults have to negotiate it. What are you going to provide? What are you going to? If there's some emotional damage there, they shouldn't show it in front of the children. Mm-hmm. But you have to be on the same page and having a role model, no matter what, you know it's a great influence in your life. If you're the type of man that wants to, hey, I said it, that's how it should be done. That'll run the household, but you're teaching your son how to be that, be that way too. And girls, women, they, they learn from that as well. This is how my dad is. They may be drawn or attracted to a male that's similar as a sign of strength when it might not be strong at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mr. Johnson? Yeah, I, I think it's critically important to have male role models in a male's life, particularly at this particular point in time in, in, in our society and with what's going on with social injustices. and just, I mean, life in general is, is a lot, you know, without all those other things. So when you compound it with all those other things, it's, it's important to have a role model, someone that can uh, lead you in the path that is of least resistance as it pertains to being getting getting caught up in the uh, justice systems and things of that nature. The role model is important. Uh, we have to, we I think we have to have role models because we 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 need young men need direction. The gentleman talked about some of the insecurities that he had as a result of how his mother felt about his dad, and I think that ties in with the emotional intelligence piece we talked about and us being able to recognize that sometimes we can't always allow emotions mm-hmm. uh, to drive us to particular behaviors that are counterproductive to the points that we're really trying to make. 
you know, and, and we're all guilty of that, I believe. And, and from time to time, we all allow our emotions to dictate behaviors that are really counterproductive to what we're really trying to resolve. So I feel like when we have those role models in a, in a young man's life, we are, are giving them that direction and that guidance that they need to be successful in life. Very good. We've got about a minute and a half before we're going to go to the break, and so I'm going to pose another question around essentially the way that things that can be done in order to help black men to recover from violence and trauma. And so, Mr. Mm-hmm. Johnson, I'm going to turn to you first with that question mm-hmm. and then Dr. Mm-hmm. Turner. I think helping and assisting uh, black men, young black men, black men in general uh, to recover from trauma is basically, I like to think about the psychological first aid model uh, mm-hmm. where we meet most important needs first. And then that being said, I think if we can address all those social determinants to health, that and, and not just physical health but mental health that plays a, a huge role if we can make sure that families and men have proper employment mm-hmm. housing education food security uh, all those things that the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs tell us that we need to feel safe and, and have a sense of well-being uh, I think that those are the key factors to uh, to that piece that we, we just talked about Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Dr. Turner, we've got about 30 seconds before we go to the break. Any comments about that? No, I think he's uh, you know, absolutely right on that. We need to provide more. We need to work with the system in a way where prevention is on the first end. And that, I, by that I mean it's hard to get people, teenagers, even unless they're forced into a group setting or individual therapy setting. So if you do it on the prevention end, which is, in schools, that you provide this emotional intelligence model in schools, you will have less of younger 13 and 14-year-olds carjacking and shooting. It's very hard to help when people don't see themselves as needing help. I mean, you can get plenty of food in Chicago at, at various places, but where is there are some places where, like, for instance, at... Uh, at the quarry with Dr. Obari Carmen and Yvette Moyo, they have drum circles. They have men doing yoga. So there are, place, there are some places like this, but the men who we think may really need help probably are not going to show up. So jail is a good place to provide that if they're in there. Mm-hmm. Where, wherever they're contained and where you, you have it, you have to do more than the, uh, than the punishment model. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, I got you now. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let me at least present this to you. Mm-hmm. So those type of things. Very good. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. I've got two great in-studio guests, and we're going to be coming into our final segment, but we would like for you to give us a call. The number is 773-591-1690. That's 773-591-1690. WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. segment of the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the University of Chicago Medicine. I'm Dr. Dorian Miller, your doctor on call, and we've been having a wonderful conversation about African-American men's mental health, which is something that I don't think receives enough attention in this day and age, and certainly all of the things that have happened to us over this year between the COVID pandemic, between the number of deaths that we have seen 
over and over again on television, online, social media, along with the low-level issues that address, uh, that uh, impact our community has just, I think, brought about a need not just for conversation but also for action. And so we're going to shift gears and to talk a little bit about that in terms of the provision of services. And so my next question is going to be first to you, Dr. Turner, and then mm-hmm. you, Mr. Johnson. Mm-hmm. Have you had to change the way that you provide services since the pandemic? If so, how? Because not only are you a psychologist, but you are also a yoga instructor. And so things things are a little bit different these days. Things are a little bit different, but every time when things get different, there's always other opportunities. For instance, I, I um, still do yoga with some friends in Minnesota on Zoom. So, so that's a good thing. But yeah, everything's on Zoom now, and it's a little bit different. For the last three and a half years, I was taking care of my mother in my house, and she made, recently made her transition in May. And so I had kind of scaled back on the things that I was doing anyway. So now what I do is I like to work with organizations, present a, a framework, and then have them go from there. So, so that's what I'm mostly doing now in terms of that, okay. doing some work. Interesting. Mr. Johnson, violence recovery specialist, mm-hmm. lead violence recovery specialist at mm-hmm. University of Chicago Medicine. A lot of face-to-face, one-on-one in mm-hmm. normal circumstances. How, how has this changed the way that you do your work? Initially, it was very difficult, and I think that when we talk about the pan- pandemic uh, and difficulty, I think that there are like adge- is, is there's an adjustment. I've noticed an uptick in adjustment disorders. People adjusting to the new way of life, the, mm-hmm. this paradigm shift in the way we do things. I have picked up, well, so as it relates to my work with the university as a lead violence recovery specialist, initially we fell back and we were only doing like calling people and things of that nature. But with the work that I do, the in-person piece is the most important component. Mm-hmm. And the phone, people need to put a face to who they're talking to. They need to have that, that human connection. And sometimes on the phone, you don't always get that. And so that was a barrier to the care that we were tr- providing to patients. And then, you know, a couple, about a month or so down the line when this first, so we went back, we came out in March and came back in in June in-house. And so now today it's very similar to the work that I was doing pre-pandemic. I just suit up, use my PPE, follow all the guidelines, make sure that I'm sanitizing, washing my hands, doing the things that I need to do, having my N95, my gowns, my gloves, my gargles, all the things I need to do to interact with the people. So having to gear up, uh, previously we would have to gear up with PPE only if we had, you know, specific signs and things of that nature on the doors letting us know what the type of conditions people have. But now it's like we're gearing up a lot more. The PPE piece is the huge piece that I would say with the paradigm shift in the work that I do with this. And also recognizing that with that adjustment disorder piece that comes along with this, that the people that I do the therapy work with, uh, a lot of teletherapy is going on now with me mm-hmm. as opposed to in an office. Uh, occasionally I will meet a client in the office, but for the most part it's over the phone or over Zoom or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and then I think we have to, I have to be more cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of anxiety-evoking uh, challenges that come along mm-hmm. with this paradigm shift. And mm-hmm. so with that... Um, 
just being mindful of those different things as I work via Zoom. Okay. Very important points because, as I said, it's a question of not just making a shift but also being able to meet people where they are. And mm-hmm. so I think that you have been able to make changes around that. Mm-hmm. Technology provides us with wonderful opportunities Absolutely. to do that, but sometimes if you can't have your eyes on someone in a way to say, okay, I hear your words, but what do I see in your face? What mm-hmm. do I see in your body language yeah, and the exactly. way that you're responding? All of those things are very important. I think we have another caller on the line. Is that correct? Brother Hall, are you there? I am here. Let me just, first of all, commend you guys for stepping up to the plate to have this show. This show is probably more important than any show that we could ever have on the talk of Chicago. And for the reason is that we suffer the most. I like I like to commend your guests for being hands-on. So I, too, do outreach on a volunteer basis with the homeless, the brothers and sisters, the dry bones up under the right ox. And I want you to know, and, and I talk with folks that what we call in prison behind the walls often as well. And I want you to know that it's more important today than ever that our people be not only evaluated, but we demand things because we know what the problem is. We know what the problem is. There's no mental health institutions in our areas. They are some, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think if we challenged that and we dealt with that, then we would stay on the track of where we need to be in terms of young people. You know, like I said, when you're doing outreach and when you're out there, you run into a lot of people that even with degrees that have failed on their luck. So we have to be able to process this stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I called today. I certainly want to commend them and you all for stepping up to the plate because many of us feel we have nowhere to go, nowhere to go, no one to talk to. And that's so important, and particularly with our seniors and our people that's been institutionalized. And I'll lastly close with this. I talked with some brothers that told me the sexual harassment and sexual things that happens to them inside of those institutions is unbelievable, and particularly in the southern part of the county. So I would like for your people to speak to that, and I'll hang up and listen. And once again, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brother Hall. I think that there are a couple of issues that comes to mind with his comments, one of which is the issue of capacity in our communities in order Mm -hmm. to have mental health services available. And then secondly, for people who are in prison that are coming out and becoming members of society that have experienced terrible, terrible trauma, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. emotional trauma, physical trauma, sexual trauma, how can we start to address those things? And so, Dr. Turner, I'll start with you, and then I'll turn to you, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, we people coming out, you have to be aware of the the fact that these things have happened. There is no one place to go that I'm aware of. I mean, you can go to the different agencies that help out. I would say this. There are a lot of churches that do a lot of good work, and I'm not talking about on Sunday. I'm talking about their outreach ministries. There are some churches like Trinity that have therapists that do that organize things, not they have legal outreach and sometimes emotional outreach. So churches are a good place to start. Making them, the churches like to have people coming in, like to have people <laughs> coming in. So mm-hmm. if you can approach them and say, hey, how about having a group for 
guys just getting released from prison mm -hmm. or sexually assault group, and then you can bring in the therapist, free of charge, of course. Uh, I think that's a good way to start. And then we just have to look around and compile these different organizations that are doing some of this work that we know are out there, but we never hear, actually hear about them. I think you raise an important point because it's not just a question of capacity and having a standard model of 50-minute hours in somebody's office down mm -hmm. on North Michigan Avenue, but figuring out how to meet people where they are and arranging services yeah. in a way that are acceptable to them. Mm -hmm. Mr. Johnson, your response? Yeah, I would say as it pertains to reentering citizens, I think it's critically important, and not just for the reentering citizens. And Dr. Turner mentioned something about school earlier. But and I would say the community as a whole, to build a trauma recovery ecosystem in communities, mm. to have the resources and the, the community-based organizations that are doing the good work. Uh, we have so many cuts on mental health in our community, so little resources as it pertains to mental health in our communities. And my, I feel that we need to have a robust reassurgence of mental health platforms in the communities. We need to be able to, I remember in grammar school, not in grammar school, but in high school, we had gym, and in gym we had, all, every year we had to do health, mm -hmm. you know, that health component, and I was, I'm not, not the health component, but the sex education component, and I, you know, that was okay, it was important, but I thought, I can't recall ever having any components that pertain to mental health, mm. and so I think the installation of mental health components into schools, into community-based organizations, into the community in general, having a robust educational outreach component, educating the community on trauma, the effects of trauma, and how the behaviors of trauma, and how those things come along. Because I know coming up as well, in every community there was somebody in the community on the block or relative that, you know, they would be like, oh, don't, don't man them. They, you know, they, they crazy or they're a little mm -hmm. slow or that's uncle so-and-so or that's, you know, and that's as far as it went. We never educated one another about that. Some people, some of times we would laugh about it and keep it moving. But I think it's important for us. And especially now that we're seeing the outcomes of how the, I mean, the, the, the divestment in uh, mental health in the communities has affected our communities. I think it's important for us to just, start instilling that hope, that installation of hope and educating others and instilling that sense of well-being in our communities again. Mm -hmm. you know. And I think to your point, starting early and putting mm -hmm. it into the schools at a very early time mm -hmm. is very important. We've got about three minutes before we're going to need to wrap up, and so I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about any programs, messages to our mm -hmm. listening audience, yeah. anything that you'd like to say before mm -hmm. we wrap the show. Dr. Turner? Yeah, the Association of Black Psychologists, their Facebook page, that's organization's been going along for over 50 years. Uh, they've, got, they've got a new Chicago chapter president, a young dynamic psychologist, Dr. Carbon, and the, the national president is also here in Chicago. So it's, it's time for the younger therapists <laughs> to, to, to begin to revitalize these organizations and time for the old heads like myself to kind of like be an old head out the way. Mm -hmm. So Dr. C they do some great things over at the quarry with Real Men Cook, and mm -hmm. they're, they're over there. They're, that's all part of that. Uh, the Association of uh, Private um, Practitioners in Behavioral Health is another organization. Chance has this social works network that uh, has mental health. Mental health is called social works when you go to look at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of practitioners on there, but there are going to be more 
supposedly coming up in January and February. And the last one I would say is there's the directory, the Black Mental Health Directory. Mm-hmm. You can look up and, uh, and and find a therapist there. And also see what your, like, as I said before, if something's not there, you know, you have to find a way to start it. Very important. And as you know, we're recording this on Facebook Live today, and so hopefully we can put some of these resources into our Facebook page so that people can access them at a little bit later. Thanks for sharing that. Mr. Johnson? Yep, I would say in addition to the resources that Dr. Turner named, I would say reach out to uh, community-based social service agencies, private practitioners in the communities that are culturally relevant and culturally competent with the work that they that they do. I work for the Branch Family Institute, which I believe is culturally competent, culturally relevant. But most importantly, I think that one of the pieces that I'm very proud of, the work that I do there, is that, you know, I pretty much specialize in working with younger uh, adolescents that have been uh, identified as having behavioral challenges, Mm -hmm. as well as myself and a gentleman by the name of Mr. Ed Bowman, who's at LCSW. We have a men's group that we work with men, and we have about 10 men that do this work. Uh, we have NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Health, which is a good resource, and they do free seminars, Zoom, things of that nature. We have SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services mm-hmm. Administration, and, and other resources in the community. So Branch Family Institute will make sure that makes it onto the Facebook page. I would like my in-studio guest today, Dr. Larry Turner, Mr. Dwayne Johnson. We've had a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for those of you who called in. I know there were a few folks that could not get onto the line, but hopefully next time we'll be able to get you on. I'd like to thank Thank our executive producer for the show, Ms. Susan Peters, our segment producer, Ms. Natalie Watson, our technical producer, Mr. Titus Williams, and we are streaming Facebook Live. Next week, you're going to hear from Dr. Ed McDonald. He's going to discuss COVID-19 and asthma, keeping those vulnerable safe. And until I have an opportunity to speak with you next time, be well. The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.